Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. God, that you would come uh, upon us in power, that we would recognize your presence here. Uh, Lord, that uh, we would recognize how much you love us and how much you want to, to speak to us and challenge us and bring clarity uh, into our lives when we're going through certain things. And God, just as we see in this text with David, uh, Lord, he sought you and you had an answer for him. God, I pray uh, as we seek you, we would find you. Uh, Lord, we would find you tonight here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so the last couple of weeks, uh, we see that David returns to the throne again in Jerusalem, but he returns to a divided nation. Uh, Israel and Judah are bickering over who has more rights to King David. Uh, well, then we see in the last chapter, this guy Sheba uh, takes that little feud and he runs with it and he attempts to start a revolution. Uh, so last chapter, we see David send out his men to take Sheba out. Out. And Joab ends up becoming commander again. Uh, he does indeed take Sheba out. Uh, he uh, Sheba in the city of Abel ended up being beheaded. So we see all these issues that come up when David comes back to Jerusalem to retake the throne. And then after we get past 2 Samuel chapter 20, before we get into 2 Samuel chapter 21... It almost seems like all the problems are taken care of, okay? It almost seems like the next chapter is going to be, and, and, and David had peace in the land, or David had rest in the land. Things are all coming together, uh, but that's uh, not what we're going to find here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. In fact, we're going to find the opposite. Now there's an other, another issue, and this issue specifically is a famine. There's a three-year famine in the land, and we see that it's rooted in a poor decision that Saul made earlier in uh, when he was alive, uh, when he was the king. So we're going to see this famine take place in Israel, and David's going to seek the Lord as to how to fix this famine. Okay, the title of this teaching is Fixing Famines. Fixing Famines. Now, not every famine or trial in our lives uh, can be fixed. Uh, sometimes you just have to endure the season of trial. But we'll see specifically in this text, the famine was really a byproduct of previous uh, rebellion in the kingship of Saul. And this famine actually can be fixed. See, sometimes there's trials in our life uh, that, that we bring into our lives. Sometimes there's famines in our life because of decisions that we've made or decisions that other people have made. And, and there's specific trials that we see here as we'll dive into the text that it's possible to do something about it it's possible to actually pull ourselves out of the trial this is the wisdom that god will give david here in second samuel chapter 21 verse 1 it says now there was a famine in the days of david for three years year after year and david inquired of the lord and the lord answered it because of saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the nation is in a season of famine. You ever go through a season of famine? 
not really feeling spiritually satisfied, constantly thirsting, constantly hungering, going maybe through a season of trial, longing and longing and never being satisfied. This is the state of the people. They're literally starving. However, we see that God has a purpose in this famine. God is going to teach David and the Israelites a lesson through this famine. This is point number one. Where there's a famine, there's a lesson. Where there's a famine, there's a lesson. God uses famines or or trials, generally speaking, in our lives to, to teach us things. This is all throughout the Bible, but in James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 to 4, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Hey, James says, have joy, not because of the trial, but because of what God's doing in the trial. God's producing something in you. He's trying to teach something to you. He's trying to produce precious faith. He's trying to mature you. Maybe he's trying to bring you to that place that you depend on him more. Uh, Maybe he's trying to bring you to that place where you seek him more. Sometimes God allows famines to let us know. That something in our life is broken. That something in our life needs to be fixed. And that's exactly why God is allowing this famine in the land. Because there's something broken in the nation of Israel. And it has to be fixed. Regardless of the various lessons that God teaches us through seasons of famine. We see that God always uses famines to fulfill his purposes. If you remember... When we were studying Genesis, that's a while back now. But we see this in the story of Joseph, right? Joseph, he's the favored son. He ends up getting sold by his brothers into slavery. Then he gets falsely accused by Potiphar. And then he's thrown into the prison. And then he interprets these dreams for the the baker and the butler. And they forget about him. One of them ends up dying. All of a sudden, Pharaoh has this dream. Long story short... We see that Joseph interpreted this dream for Pharaoh that there would be a seven, uh, seven years of, of, of uh, that they would be prosperous, there'd be lots of food, and then there would be a seven year famine. And we see that through that seven year famine, God used that famine to bring the Israelites to Egypt for his plans and purposes so that the fulfillment of the sin of the Ammonites and Canaan could happen so God could justify taking out the Canaanites so that he could give the people the promised land. The point is, God uses famines to fulfill his purposes, to teach us lessons. So we shouldn't be surprised when they happen. We should expect famines here and there. We should expect trials. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, do not think it strange, the fiery trial, which is to try you as if some strange thing happened to you. Like you shouldn't be shocked at this point. If you've been walking with the Lord long enough, you recognize there's going to be trials in this life. There are going to be seasons of famine. Now we got to discern whether we brought that famine into our own life. We brought that trial into our own life, or this is just a trial that God's using for his specific plans and purposes. Let's look what David does here. In verse 1, 
Famine in the land. At this point, it's three years. David inquired of the Lord. David did what we should all do in the midst of a famine. Seek the Lord. This is point number two. Seek God in the famine. Seek God in the famine. <clears throat> so one year goes by. We don't see any seeking the Lord. Two years go by, and it's like, hmm, one year of a famine. Okay, we had a bad harvest, whatever the case may be. Okay, now two years in a famine, that's not normal. Usually they had rainy seasons twice a year, like clockwork. But now three years in a famine? And finally, after three years of being in a famine, David decides to seek the Lord. How long will you go through a famine before you decide to seek the Lord? See, David, he seeks the Lord because he recognizes that these things aren't just happening because things happen. There's a reason that these things are happening. And the reason is really a spiritual reason. There's something that happened uh, way back when. A sin that was committed. And now the whole nation is suffering because of this specific sin of Saul. David realized at this point God's the only one that has the answer. That's the reality for each and every one of us. As we go through trials. I mentioned James chapter 1 verse 4, how he tells us to count it all joy when we go into various trials. You know what he says in the very next verse, in verse 5? I'll read it for you. The context is going through trials. And he says here, just over a couple more, James chapter 1. Uh, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He says, hey, when you're going through trials, seek God for wisdom. What's going on? Why is this happening, God? Or, or what are you trying to do in my heart? But in order to seek God for wisdom, as he says in verse 6, we got to have to have the faith that there's wisdom to be had in the trial. That God does have an answer as to why this specific thing is happening to us in our lives. David sought the Lord for wisdom. See, sometimes God... <clears throat> Allows famines in our life just to bring us to that place that we'll seek them. <laughs> Sometimes God brings some pretty horrific things in our life just because he wants us, to sp- wants us to spend time with them. As crazy as that sounds, it's the truth. God brings different things in our life sometimes because he says, man, you haven't been spending time with me the way that you should. And I want to spend more time with you. I love you. And this is the only way I could get your attention. God knows what needs to happen in our life in order to bring us to our knees. He, he knows. He, he knows what things need to take place in our circumstances and scenarios to bring us to that place where we're truly in that spot of desperation and surrender, seeking him. Because that's what he wants. See, David. David had a lifestyle of seeking God through trials, and not just through trials. David sought God on a pretty consistent basis. We see through the Psalms, 
lot of times he's going through trials when he writes those psalms and he sought the Lord for wisdom. He sought the Lord for comfort. He, he sought the Lord because he, he knew how badly he needed the Lord. David, again, we see him here. Second Samuel chapter 21. Once again, continuing with this lifestyle of seeking the Lord. It wasn't just one time. He didn't just say a sinner's prayer. He constantly sought the Lord. He spent time with Yahweh. So look what happens here. Second Samuel chapter 21. So David inquired of the Lord. Look what happens. And the Lord answered. What do you know? God, or sorry, David sought God in prayer and God answered him. This is point number three. God answers us in famines. God answers us in famines. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, God says, Seek me and you'll find me if you seek me with your whole heart. You want wisdom? Seek me. You want comfort? Seek me. You want strength? Seek me. If you want to find me, if you really want to find me, then you got to seek me. And not, he didn't say half-heartedly. He says, with your whole heart. Sometimes we don't get answers from God specifically when we're going through trials because we don't really want to know the answer. And we're not really seeking him wholeheartedly. We're just kind of asking and praying because that's what we think we're supposed to do as good Christians. But he says, hey, if you seek me with your whole heart and you really want to know the reason why these things are going on in your life, if you're really open to the truth, then I'm going to give you the truth. But you might pray one thing and your heart might be in another place. You don't really want to know the answer. David wanted to know the answer. And God, just as he did for David, <clears throat> he answered him. So too, will he do for us? So God answers him, and he gives him the reason as to why this famine is happening. He says here, look at verse 1. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Okay. Now the Gibeonites, uh, we see them in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, they were... Um, uh, a people group that were in the promised land, a people group that were really supposed to be taken out. However, the Gibeonites, they found out about how powerful Yahweh was and all these miracles that he performed. Uh, uh, you know, he provided manna from heaven and water from a rock. He parted the Red Sea. He wiped out the army of Egypt. So the Gibeonites, they actually fooled the Israelites and they say, hey, we're, we're this people group from a distant land. You know, we've, we've heard about your powerful God and you're a powerful people. And, and so we come here to like basically be a part of your group but they actually lived in canaan they were deceiving the israelites however because joshua wasn't aware of this and he didn't seek the lord about it mind you he makes a, a treaty with them he makes a covenant with them and he says okay we won't wipe you out if you become our servants so the gibeonites they became the servants of the israelites but he made a covenant and, in, uh, and it wasn't just Joshua, it was the elders as well. And in Joshua chapter 9, they say basically, hey, if we break this covenant or if our descendants break this covenant, let the wrath of God be upon us. Saul broke the covenant. We don't see exactly where Saul broke the covenant because it doesn't tell us in 2 Samuel chapter 1 during uh, Saul's kingship. But somewhere along the line, we see the text reveals at some point... 
Saul decided to slaughter the Gibeonites, ultimately breaking the covenant that Joshua made with them. See, God, he expects us to keep our covenants. He expects us to keep our covenants even when they're costly. Whether that's a promise that we make to God, or or a promise that we make to another individual, or a promise that we make on behalf of a group to another group, promises between nations, individuals, you name it. God expects people to keep their promises. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He, He expects us to keep our promises even when it's costly. You remember the book of Judges, Jephthah. He asks God, he says, hey, God, uh, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house if you give me victory in this specific battle. God gives him victory. He comes back home. What was the first thing that came out of his house? His daughter, okay? And we see Jephthah, he fulfilled his promise and actually sacrificed his daughter. God didn't want that. God didn't want like human sacrifices. But the point is, if you make a vow to the Lord or you make a vow to somebody else, God expects you to keep your promises. That's why we got to be very careful with what we promise. But Saul, he broke this promise. And he being the king, the authority over Israel... He was supposed to keep the covenants that the leaders made in the past. Saul, he's probably been dead for about 40 years at this point, okay? So the nation of Israel is suffering because of something their leader did decades ago. This is point number four. Our present famines can come from past faults. Our present famines can come from past faults. Now, the situation that we find ourselves in, the circumstances, the trials, whatever, those things can sometimes be rooted in past faults, past faults of our own, um, or past faults of others. We remember as we've been studying the life of David, uh, we see a lot of the problems that David had. He brought them upon himself. In Second Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan the prophet gave him that prophecy from the Lord. Hey, Dave, guess what? You're not going to die. God forgives you. But there's going to be uh, division amongst your household. There's going to be some tragic things that happen to you during your lifetime. So we see a lot of the stuff in David's life he brought on himself. But not this. Not this famine. That was because of a decision of someone else. See, we can face trials in our lives because of poor decisions leaders made decades ago, centuries ago. We can have trials in our life because of poor decisions our parents made. We can also have trials in our life because of poor decisions that we made. And it could be decisions that we made long ago. Sometimes those things... Come back to bite us, as the Bible says, your sin will find you out. Forty years or so have gone by, and now the people are facing the consequences for Saul's sin. We see a warning to leaders here, really to everybody. The context, Saul being a leader. Leaders, more than anyone else, need to seek the Lord for wisdom especially when it comes to making decisions that affect the people. 
Leaders can't just give in to making emotionally led decisions and just go, ah, it is what it is. Why? Because other people are bound to suffer. Your decisions today could have catastrophic consequences for others tomorrow. That's the reality. And it's not just leadership. It's across the board. Sometimes we don't realize how our decisions can affect people for centuries, for, for generation after generation in the future. We think about how it affects us in the present. But we see throughout the Bible, we live in a fallen world. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. One person. You see that people are facing a famine because of the sin of one person. That person was a leader. And now the people are struggling. People can't move forward with their everyday life. They're starving. Sometimes, God's people can't move forward because there's sin that was committed in the land and it has to be dealt with. We also see this in Joshua. In Joshua chapter 7, this guy named Achan, he took the things that were supposed to be dedicated to the Lord from Jericho. They were supposed to give all the stuff from Jericho to the Lord, but he took some and he hid some. Then when the Israelites go out to fight, at AI, they get smoked. They get whooped. And Joshua's going, what the heck, God? I thought you said, be strong and courageous. Like, you're going to give us the victory. It's like, hey, there's something going on in the camp. There's a sin among the people that's preventing you from being victorious. There's a sin among the people that's preventing the whole group of people from moving forward. It was the sin of Achan. He took what was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. See, it's not just always a leader. Sometimes the sin of one individual can affect the majority. And literally, there can be sin in the camp, sin among the people. And that one person's sin is preventing the whole body from moving forward. That's why it's so important to consider the decisions that we make. They could have catastrophic consequences. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 21. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David realizes that there's a problem. God answered David. And David recognized that he had to deal with the issue. Now, David is having to deal with an issue that he didn't cause, right? He's got to deal with an issue that somebody else caused decades ago. That's also a reality in leadership. Sometimes you got to deal with a lot of issues that you don't cause, that someone else caused. But we can't just go, oh, it's not my problem. I didn't do it. I didn't commit the sin. I didn't kill the Gibeonites. What's it to me? If it affects the people, then it is your problem, right? David recognizes this. He's not just going to let the people starve with this famine, especially now because he knows the root of the issue. So David, he calls the king of the Gibeonites. He did what the Lord had asked him to do. He obeyed the Lord. 
David had to take action to fix the problem. Okay, It, it wasn't just that David prayed and God said, famine over, poof, it's all done. That's not what happens in this text. David seeks the Lord. The Lord gives him an answer and he says, hey, if you want to get out of this problem, this is what you have to do. Yeah, I'm with you, but this is what I'm asking you to do. I'm not just going to take you out of the problem. You got to do something about it. You got to take action or the problem's just going to continue. You want to fix the problem in your marriage? Maybe God's got a direction that you need to walk in. You want to fix the problem with the relationship with your kids or whatever they're going through? Maybe God's just not going to poof fix it. Maybe he says, hey, this is what I need you to do. I'll do my part, but you got to do yours. Maybe you got problems at work. You're seeking the Lord for wisdom. Maybe he's got something that he wants you to do about it. See, the trials that we face in this life, sometimes God gives us direction as to how to get out of the trial. David got that, and he did something with it. He took action. You better believe if David doesn't take action, then uh, we read a different Bible. And the Israelites thus starved to death. And God had to pick somebody else and raise up another nation. But he recognized that there had to be action taken to fix this problem. So the Gibeonites, we see. David approaches the king. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now we see the Gibeonites were not children of Israel, as I described uh, to you from Joshua chapter 9. But the children of Israel had sworn protection over them. Look what it says here in verse 2. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. It was Saul's zeal that led him to commit murder. That that led him to attempt to wipe out the people group. It, It was in his zeal. Zeal misplaced dishonors God. We can have zeal directed in the wrong direction. We can have zeal that's absolutely misplaced. That's what Paul had. Paul of Tarsus. That's why he was persecuting Christians. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says, because he was zealous. <laughs> he was zealous about the traditions of his fathers. This is why he was having Christians killed and imprisoned. He, he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing a thing that honored God. He had a lot of zeal. But his zeal was misplaced see in our zeal for god sometimes we can think we're heading in the right direction we're passionate uh, about the right thing but sometimes uh, our zeal is misplaced and we're actually dishonoring the lord with our passion we're dishonoring the lord with our zeal see zeal is good if it's pointed in the right direction but in order for zeal to be pointed in the right direction it has to be connected to what it has to be connected to wisdom it has to be connected to wisdom Saul didn't make a wise choice. He made an emotional choice. He said, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Let's wipe out the Gibeonites. He might have even thought he was doing a good thing. The text doesn't tell us. But it says that it was a zeal that led him to murder all these people. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 3. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? 
See, David was willing to make things right, even though he didn't do anything wrong in this specific circumstance. We see that David, throughout his life, he's a picture of who? Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was willing to make things right on behalf of the whole world, even though what? He didn't do anything wrong. He was completely innocent. We see that same willingness in David. It wasn't his fault that these things were happening, yet he was willing to make things right. We also see David, though he's a king, he comes as a servant. What shall I do for you? Jesus, though he's a king, he left his heavenly abode and he came what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Then it says here in verse 3, And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? To uh, make atonement means to appease or make amends or make things right. He's saying, how can I, how can I make things right with you guys? David, he offered to do what it took to make things right with the Gibeonites. See, Jesus was also willing to pay the price to do what it took to make things right between God and the rest of the world. And we see Jesus is the atonement for our sins. He atoned not just for the sins of us, First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, but for the whole world. He says, for the whole world, Jesus atoned for the sins of the entire world. Why? Because he wants the whole world to be in relationship. Now, the fact that he atoned for the sins of the whole world doesn't mean that the whole world is forgiven. Just as we see in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. The people's sins were atoned for every year on the Day of Atonement. But not everyone in Israel had a saving knowledge of Yahweh. Not everyone in Israel had a relationship with God. See, Jesus, he atoned for the sins of the world. But there comes a time for each and every person where they have to accept that atonement. And by putting their faith in the person of Jesus Christ and accepting that atonement, then they're forgiven. Then they get to experience eternal life with Jesus Christ. Jesus atoned for the sins of the world. He made things right between us and God. David, he's offering, hey, what do you need me to do, to make things right. Verse four, it says, and the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. So, David offers to do uh, whatever it takes to make things right. And, and these people say, hey, we don't want silver or gold. And we're not saying like uh, uh, one of, of yours for one of mine. Uh, this is directly connected to the house of Saul. So we want seven men who are descendants of Saul to be capitally punished. Okay. And the Gibeonites believed, hey, this will, this will, this will make things right. This is serving justice. So David, he was willing to do it, says at the end of verse 6. And the king said, I will give them. He, he was willing to do whatever it took to, to make things right between God and his people. 
and his people in the Gibeonites. Uh, uh, yeah, his people in the Gibeonites. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Joshua, uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was taken between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Okay, let's flip back a bit in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we remember this covenant uh, that was made between uh, David and Jonathan. Now, the covenant originally starts back in chapter... Um, <clears throat> Uh, chapter 18, uh, but it builds uh, as they grow in their relationship. And, and David says something specific here, or Jonathan asks him to commit to something specific, rather. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42, it says, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So, uh, you recall culturally, it was natural for the next king, uh, if he wasn't from the lineage of the original king, he would wipe out all the males of that household. That wasn't the type of king David was. Jonathan knew that, but Jonathan wanted him to make that covenant just in case. Uh, and we see David did. He says, hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wipe away your descendants. I, I, I really, uh, want to honor you because they were best buds. So, we see that David, he keeps his covenant. Saul broke a covenant, okay, but David keeps his covenant. See the king? The king keeps his covenant. We can always trust that King Jesus will keep his covenant. He will keep his promises. No matter what, if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, that's why Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen. We see in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is pointing back to the promise that was originally made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says here in Hebrews chapter 6, almost there, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, listen to this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. We shouldn't swear to God, but God can swear to God, right? He, he swore, in other words, by his name. And we see God's name. God's name is his character. When he reveals his name, he has many names. He's always revealing something about himself. When he proclaimed the name of the Lord to uh, Moses on Mount Sinai, he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. He tells him, this is my name. My name is who I am. It's my character. So when God makes a promise, he's swearing by his own name. And he cannot deny his name. Why? Because he can't deny his character. He's a promise keeper. He's faithful. So if he promised you something, he's going to keep it. Has God promised you something? Maybe he promised you restoration in your marriage. Maybe he promised you uh, reconciliation with a specific family member or friend. Maybe he promised you a, a family that you just don't have yet. Maybe he promised you, like he did Abraham, a child. And it seems like that's not going to happen. And, and you're looking at these different promises, maybe, that God has given you over the years. And, and you're looking at your circumstances and going, God, it doesn't add up. 
I don't see how these things can happen. How do you promise this thing? But this is what's happening in my life. That's what Abraham thought. 99 years old. Sarah, 90. They were going to have a son at that point. But it happened. Why? Because God said it was going to happen. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. We can absolutely trust his promises because we can trust his character. It's who he is. He cannot deny himself. So David, being a type of Christ, he gives us that picture. Saul being a type of antichrist, he's a promise breaker. In Daniel chapter 9, we see the tribulation. It's going to start with a peace covenant between Israel and the surrounding nations uh, of Israel. He's going to solve peace in the Middle East. And it says halfway through the tribulation at the three and a half year mark, he's going to break the covenant. Why? Because he's a promise breaker. He's a liar. Satan's the father of lies. The Antichrist is a liar. He doesn't keep his promises. That's King Saul. He's not a promise keeper. David, his picture of Jesus Christ. He's a promise keeper. Every single thing he says he's going to do, he's going to do. So he keeps his promise that he made to Jonathan concerning Mephibosheth. Remember his lame son, Jonathan's lame son. So the text continues here. Verse 8. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up from Adriel, the son of Barzilla, the Meholothite. Meholothite. I don't know if that's right. Anyways, we see the specific people that were chosen, all descendants of Saul. Uh, we see this lady Rizba, two of her sons, and then Michal. Uh, Michal was... Uh, uh, was previously David's uh, uh, wife, actually, um, and uh, daughter of uh, of Saul. Uh, so she was given away by Saul, and now she has these other kids. And um, yeah, so these sons uh, are put to death. These seven descendants of Saul. We see uh, here. Picking it up. Uh, Mephibosheth in verse 8. It's important to note it's not the same Mephibosheth. I guess it was a popular name back then or something. I don't know. Um, but it's not the same one. It just says, <laughs> David promised that he's not going to He's gonna keep his covenant with Jonathan. So he's going to save Mephibosheth. It's not saying in the next verse. And then he killed Mephibosheth. You know, that's not what he's saying. It's a different person. Uh, so we see here in verse 9. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. So, these men, they were hung. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, uh, we see... Uh, Anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Okay, this was specific. Uh, these men, though they didn't do anything per se that the Bible mentions, uh, they were uh, receiving capital punishment in the form of, of judgment, in the form of cursing. That's why they were hung uh, in the way that they were. But it says here that it was done before the Lord. Before the Lord implies that God actually approved of this. God he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33 tells us. He doesn't even want wicked people to die. But yet, in this specific situation, justice needed to be served. And God agreed with the justice that the Gibeonites asked for in the death 
of these seven men. Now we can look at this and go, did God want them to do that? We can't say for sure, but we can say this, that God is a righteous judge, okay? He, he knows what's just when we don't, and we don't know the lives of these seven men. They could have been hooligans. We don't know. Maybe they deserve to die. We have no idea. And we don't know their eternal state either. We don't know if they went to be with the Lord or they didn't. Uh, those details, sadly, aren't in the text, uh, but we see uh, the Lord approved of these deaths. So it says here, back in verse 9, so they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so this helps us know this is right around Passover. Okay, um, so the, the first days of barley harvest, uh, first fruit, so you have Passover, the 14th day of Nisan, 15th day of Nisan, Feast of Unleavened Bread, 16th day of Nisan is the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, which is Resurrection Day, uh, is uh, the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so this is right uh, around that time period, uh, right around Passover, just after, he says, in the uh, first few days of, uh, the, in the first days of the, the barley harvest. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beast of the field by night. We see this woman, Rizpah, she's mourning over the loss of her two sons. And, and we kind of look at this and go, Okay, yeah, I get that she's sad, but, but why is the, 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 the author so keen on helping us understand, uh, this woman's spiritual state as she mourns for her sons? Uh, remember her sons, uh, were actually, uh, the atonement. <laughs> that was, they had to pay the price, uh, so that Israel and Gibeon could be back in right relationship. The mourning of this woman alludes to the morning that we should all experience when we consider the cross. See, there should be a level of sadness connected to the cross. When we look at the price that Jesus paid for us, atonement is a filthy, filthy job. For the priests atoning for uh, the sins of the Israelites, they had to get there in the animals and, and wash certain body parts and take out intestines and cut off fat and all these. Na- it was a hideous, smelly, disgusting job. What Jesus had to face on the cross was disgusting. All the blood... The smells, I couldn't imagine being there in that moment. But we see in God's divine authorship, he's alluding to the the mourning that we should experience over the death of his only begotten son. Now, obviously with the cross, there's joy as well. Absolutely so much joy. Even Jesus had joy. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, says that. But there also should be a reality that we don't just take the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and Jesus died for my sins. It was a filthy job that he had to accomplish. It, it was hard work. None of us could, could have accomplished what he accomplished. There should be this level of sadness when we consider what Jesus did for us on the cross, he died for us. Not just any death, a brutal death. So this woman, she's mourning the atoning sacrifice of her sons, literally. 
So, the body of the men's the men, they were left unburied, and this was also a sign of judgment. So, the mom is making sure none of the animals get to the bodies. And she did this till the late rainy season came, which is right around Passover as well. But the rainy seasons weren't coming, okay? So that's why there's a famine in the land. So there hasn't been rainy season. So we guess for three years, um, right around March or April, April, we would see the late rainy season uh, come. So um, however many days it was, we don't know for sure. Uh, but uh, part of the point that the author is pointing at, uh, too, is the fact that the rainy seasons came, which means that the... Famine is over, okay? Second Samuel chapter 21. We'll close with this last little section. And David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, uh, had done. Uh, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his sons, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, and the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So David, he's not indifferent about the deaths of these men. Okay, it's important to note. David loves his people. He's not just like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, it all worked out in the end. You know, these guys died, but now we're in the famine's over. Some more people are going to live. No, that's not David's heart. He he wants to honor these men, even though their their bodies was, were cursed because of their descendant Saul. He wants to give them a, a proper burial, uh, and he gets the bones of Jonathan and Saul uh, as well, and then he buries all the bones in the same place. But it says here most important part of the section, the end of verse 14. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Now, in Numbers chapter 34, uh, if you've been with us on Sundays, we've been talking about some of this as we've been going through the book of Galatians and talking about the law. Uh, we see with the law, there were cert- there was a, there was a curse connected to breaking it, and there were blessings connected to keeping it. Uh, so, uh, we see here that there's a specific, uh, curse that God mentions, um, okay, Numbers, Numbers chapter 35, <clears throat> verse 33. He says, uh, Numbers 35, verse 33, So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Okay, Specifically, he's speaking of murder. Okay, When there's murder in the land, and, and no justice is served, then God's going to curse the land. So we see this curse, this promise fulfilled. The Gibeonites were murdered. Justice was never served. So God doesn't just curse Saul and his descendants. He curses the entire land. Because it wasn't just one group of people, the tribe of Benjamin. It was the nation of Israel as a whole. They had to suffer through it together. But we see God responded. He relinquished from his curse by answering the prayer of David 
to bring uh, the people out of this famine. The famine ceased. This is the fifth and final point. Famines don't last forever. Famines don't last forever. There's always an end to the famine. There, there's always an end to the trial. Okay. Now, when whether that end happens in this life or the next, sometimes that's on us, as we see uh, in the text. We know this life is a series of trials. There's also reality that we often go through trials and we get out of a trial. Now, we see that God didn't end this specific trial, this famine, until David did something about the situation, until David addressed the issue. See, sometimes... God will let us stay in the trial. He'll let us stay in the famine as long as it takes until we recognize that uh, we're the ones that put ourselves in the situation to begin with. Sometimes we can have the misconception, I'm just being persecuted because I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm suffering just because Jesus said there are tribulations. Like, yeah, that's true. Jesus said that, but there's also reality. But sometimes we bring unnecessary suffering in our life because of sin. He says, this type of suffering, these types of famines, I need you to do something about it or I'm going to keep you there. He doesn't want us to have the misconception that there will be blessing in the land when there's sin in the land that needs to be addressed. God will eventually bring us out of trials in his perfect timing. That could be when we die, okay? <laughs> but there's also... A reality that sometimes God's waiting for us to address the issue. Maybe you're going through a trial right now. Maybe there's some type of spiritual famine that you're walking through. Maybe you're just not satisfied with life. Or all these circumstances just seem to be coming to uh, against you. If that's you, you'd be wise to do as David did and seek the Lord and ask for wisdom. How many years are going to go by that we're in a famine? Until we actually ask God, why is this happening? Man, I've gone through all these trials, Lord. And I just keep meditating on the verses that in the world we will have tribulation. And maybe God's like, hey, maybe you should ask me why you're going through the trial. Maybe you should seek me for wisdom. Because maybe you're part of the reason why you're going through the trial. And we're not going to get an answer unless we seek him for one. And if he gives us an answer, we have a responsibility to do something about it. Sometimes God's waiting for us to pull ourselves out of the trial. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, uh, Lord, thank you for your patience and long-suffering with each and every one of us. God, and we know that this world um, uh, is a fallen world, and we face seasons of famine, seasons of trial. Uh, God, and we know sometimes it just happens and sometimes uh, there's something we can do to, to stop it, to prevent it, to get out of it. God, so I pray that you would give us discernment, give us wisdom. If we're going through anything, Lord, uh, any of us, if we're going through anything right now um, that we've brought on ourself, uh, God, please give us uh, the answer as to how to correct it, how to turn from it, uh, Lord, that we can be um, in, in that spiritual land flowing with milk and honey, God, that we should, that we would be able to, to, to eat the bread of life and enjoy it, that we would uh, drink uh, and thirst for the water of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as you promised, we would be filled, uh, God, that we wouldn't go through these seasons um, for uh, just because we, we've made poor decisions, uh, Lord. But if we have, uh, God, then please help us understand how to get out of it, God. 
We know you want your people to be full spiritually. You don't want us to starve. God, so help us know how to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.